But some of these songs total praise to God that he is sovereign, he is rule, he is the one who is the king over this world. And it's a good reminder for all of us as we deal with some of the issues we're going to be talking about today. I am the aforementioned uh, Pastor Dave Mitchell, and it's good to be with you and worship together. As we wrap up our Common Ground series, we began this Common Ground series by talking about Jesus' interactions with a woman at the well. Uh, she was a woman that had kind of a moral standing that... Uh, uh, would have been objectionable to just anybody who was a follower of Christ and the teachings of God's Word, and yet he engaged with her in such a very attractive way that it brought her to believe in Jesus and have a re- revival break out in the community in which she lived. We love that kind of image of Jesus Christ. And this morning we're going to be talking about politics, culture, and kingdom, and uh, pretty much in that order. And unless you've been living in the Sahara Desert, you probably recognize these two people. And uh, we got Clinton and we got uh, Trump. How many are you voting for? uh, How many think they should both be thrown into a basket of deplorables? Uh, Because we have this kind of animosity that I found this picture of kind of going back and forth and it just is... It's just agonizing at times to see how this thing plays out. Never seen an election quite like this one is in my lifetime, as I can recall back, because what we're really looking for is, is the Rodney King, can't we all just get along? That's what, we, that's what we would love to see. And this is why I love this verse. This verse is so meaningful, especially now. Paul the Apostle wrote Galatians 3, For all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor freeman, there is neither male nor female, there is neither Republican nor Democrat, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I'm glad that Paul had the foresight to put that into scriptures, because he knew that this election was coming, and so he wanted us to be able to sort out the past, and of course, uh, God said, never add to to his word. And so let's just erase that. Let's pretend. But you get the point. I'm not going to talk about Republicans today. I'm not going to talk about Democrats today. I don't care what your political persuasion happens to be. You may be libertarian. You may be the Socialist Party. uh, You may be the Green Party. It just doesn't matter to me today and right now. What I'd like to do is take a little bit. uh, I watched a video of Andy Stanley, who's got one of these mega churches down. You know, many of us know his father, Charles Stanley. He's got one of those mega churches down in, in um, Atlanta, Georgia area, multiple campuses, just a big church, and he's doing a great work for Jesus Christ. And he preached a message similar to this, and he says, one of the reasons why I want you moms and dads to snap out of all the quarreling that's going on over this election, he says, because you're scaring the children. And I like that concept. We need to be careful that we're not scaring the children. And so I want to give to you what I believe would be God's message to us on a political eve of one of the biggest elections, and and really the consequences of this election could be lasting for decades and decades. And so one of the first things that I notice that comes from God's Word is this basic truth. And you have some of these, you have all this in an outline. You need to know that God is sovereign and in control, and we believe that. Sometimes we wonder about that. 
Sometimes we see some of the things that are taking place in this world, in this election, in our community, in our personal lives, and we question, is God really sovereign? Is he really in control? Because there are times when our leaders oppose our Christian values, and that's troubling to us. So I want to give you some concrete proof that God is pulling strings to control the world in which we live. There's a great passage that goes all the way back to the days of Isaiah. Now, I'm going to give you a little background. Isaiah wrote his word lived about 700 B.C. It's critical that you know that. In Isaiah's time, in 700 B.C., he wrote about a king that had not even been born yet. He wrote about a king by the name of Cyrus. King Cyrus is going to be the king of Persia, the Medes and the Persians. And King Cyrus wouldn't rule until the mid-500 B.C. But God says, Isaiah, write this down because I know of a man that's going to be born. His name is going to be given to him as Cyrus. And he's going to be the king over the nation that now is called Israel. And so I want you to tell the people about this. I want this to be a word of prophecy. Here's what Isaiah wrote. God says, through Isaiah, to you and to me here, a couple thousand years plus later, it is I who says of Cyrus. Now Cyrus, again, 700 B.C., not around until the 500 B.C. Nobody knows about Cyrus. Nobody knows about the Persians. That Cyrus, he is my shepherd, God says. This pagan king is God's shepherd. And he will perform all my desire. God's going to work through Cyrus to accomplish his will. Is this a one-off? Or did God give this to us so that we can have an assurance that God is in control? I believe the latter. That he will perform my desire and he declares a Jerusalem. She will be built. Now Isaiah's thinking, wait a minute, Jerusalem will be built? Jerusalem's fine the way it is right now. What are you talking about Jerusalem will be built? They didn't know that in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar would come in and destroy Jerusalem. Nobody knew that in 700 B.C., but in 586, that's what happened. So God says, I'm going to raise up Cyrus. I'm going to raise up Persia to rule over Babylon, who destroyed Jerusalem, so that he can come and rebuild Jerusalem. Because that's my city. That is the seat of where Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection will occur. So I want to reconstruct it. But they didn't even know it was going to be destroyed, that it was. So he says, And declares Jerusalem, she will be built. And to the temple, your foundation will be laid. What? It's going to be destroyed? What? What do you mean it's going to be laid? Because it was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar, 586 B.C. And your foundation will be laid, and thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. God speaks about a pagan king that could care less about the Judeo-Christian values that we hold to today. And he says, I'm calling him my anointed. Who else did God call his anointed? King David, a fellow by the name of Jesus Christ. And now he says about Cyrus? This is astounding. But this is God's hand 
working in the kingdoms of that time to give to you and me a story that God is in control and that he doesn't make mistakes and no one's surprised and he's already seen the outcome of November 8th's votes. He already knows it. And so he says, He is my anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue the nations before him. That means come, destroy Babylon that destroyed Jerusalem, because I've got plans for Jerusalem. And then he goes on and says, I am the Lord. There is no other. There's others that act like they're the Lord, but there is no other, God says. Besides me, there is no God. There's no other hope. There's no other place to go. There's no one else in charge. So he says, you just come back to me, the God who is in charge of this thing, because I've just proven to those who read in 2016 at Calvary Church on October the 30th that I've given you evidence that I do these things. No one could have predicted by Isaiah 700 that in 550 or so that Cyrus would be in charge. So I've done these things that men may know, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I want people who are all hung up on this election to know that there's no one besides me. Those who are all uptight. He says, I am the Lord, there is no other. The one forming the light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity, I'm the Lord, and I'm doing it all. Good, bad, I'm in charge. If there's one takeaway, never forget, God's in charge. Sometimes we have rogue rulers that drive us nuts because they do things that are so horrible. King Nebuchadnezzar was one of those rogue rulers as he came in 605 B.C. and began to destroy and disassemble the nation of Israel, or Judah. And several times he would bring back tens of thousands of people, Jewish people, from Jerusalem and Judah, the southern tribes, and bring them into Babylon. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar got himself a big head and became proud. Can you imagine a politician being proud? Is that, is that even conceivable in our minds that politicians who are our public servants, that occasionally they have a problem with pride and they think they're in charge and they don't even have any knowledge that God's in charge? It's astounding to think about that, but it does happen. King Nebuchadnezzar was one of those guys. King Nebuchadnezzar got full of himself and he began to talk about how great he was. And God says, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sick and tired of how You talk about how great you are. So every now and then, I divinely intervene in supernatural ways to prove to the proud that they're not in charge, but that I am. So God comes to Nebuchadnezzar. You can read about it in Daniel 4. And he turns Nebuchadnezzar into what I would so lovingly call something akin to a werewolf. And he goes out into the wilderness and he becomes hairy beast, crazed man. And so God rips Nebuchadnezzar down to the roots of humility. And then God comes and transforms him back as Nebuchadnezzar finally recognizes that God is in charge. So God says this through Daniel to us 
that he humbles those kind of people on times. But at the end of that period, when he was cast out into the wilderness as this hairy beast for his proud and arrogant attitude against God, Nebuchadnezzar, this most powerful man in the world in that day, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. It's insane to go against God. So his reason returned to him. And I bless the Most High. That's the name of God. And praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Now, if Nebuchadnezzar, this ruthless pagan king, that it was nothing to him to kill a Jew, it's nothing to him, that he has a reality, that God is the most high God, and that he is the one whose kingdom endures from generation to generation, my generation and the generations to come, how much more should we, who claim to be the followers of Jesus, live a life of faith that God's in charge today because he's given evidence. Isaiah, 700 B.C., King Cyrus predicted long 150 years before his birth and then raised up to control Babylon that destroyed Jerusalem. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, man, there's no one else to go to but God. When King Nebuchadnezzar becomes our model, (laughs) it's a little scary. But that's what happened. So he turns his heart to the Lord. And the basic truth is this, that God is a sovereign God and God is control and God raises up leaders. Daniel 2.21, write it down. Daniel 2.21. Daniel writes that God raises up leaders. He tears down leaders. God is in charge. And we ever lose that sense that God is in charge. I hear stories of families being torn apart because one is for one politician, one is for another politician. And I think that's almost criminal that this would become divisive. So we humble ourselves before God and we respond in this way. We need to respond as Jesus would respond. I'm going to give you uh, real basic stuff that comes from the life of Daniel. Now let me read 1 Peter 2 first. Beloved, we urge you, I urge you as aliens and strangers. We hear a lot about aliens today, right? Illegal aliens, undocumented workers, whatever the terminology may be. We, who are believers in Jesus, we're aliens. This is not our home. America is not God's home. This election is a foreign concept. And we are aliens and strangers just trying to live for Christ. So he says, I want you to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. One of the things that just drives me crazy is people who in sanctimonious righteousness will rail on about the elections when they themselves in their moral impurity are internally corrupt. It's disgraceful. What God says, you are an alien, absolutely. This isn't our home. This isn't our citizenship when you think in the kingdom of God. So stop the fleshly lusts. Be holy, be pure. So it says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Is our behavior excellent among the Gentiles, among the people 
in this election? Are we conducting ourselves with dignity and respect that honors the name of Jesus? That's what we need to deal with. So then the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, because we're going to get pushed back, we're going to get criticized, we have this belief system, we believe these things about those areas, and we can be called bigots and homophobes and all those kinds of things. We're going to be slandered. They were slandered 2,000 years ago because they're aliens then. We're going to be slandered today because we're aliens today. That's normal. God says, get used to it. There's never going to be a time when it's not going to be true. If in 2,000 years it doesn't change, don't expect it to change next year, no matter what the election is. So the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds, because of your good deeds, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You and I who claim to be followers of Jesus, and I'm just presuming that we all do here today, for the sake of argument, as we do good deeds, as we live holy lives, as we become observed by those others who look and believe differently than us, we are for the glory of God. Our citizenship is a higher calling. Our kingdom is not of this world. And our value systems are drastically different. And so this is where Jesus lands. This is what Peter tells us. So therefore, I need to keep these things in mind. If you take the life of Daniel, Daniel, just to review, in 605 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar goes to Jerusalem and Judah. He takes thousands of people kidnapped. He brings them back to Babylon, which is Iraq, Iran, that territory of today. And he abuses them, he mistreats them, some of them are going to be killed. Daniel happens to be one of them and his three buddies that we now know from the Babylonian names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, although they had Hebrew names that were changed from them. They were taken captive in 605 B.C. And they land in King Nebuchadnezzar's court. They become those sort of interns, if you will, that Nebuchadnezzar is going to raise up to serve in his cabinet. So they have a political position. They're part of the political power of the day. And so Nebuchadnezzar looks at them, and so I say, like Daniel said, I want to be faith-filled, and I want to be obedient to God no matter what the circumstances are. And that's our calling. That's how we overcome with good deeds. So Daniel says this, He's kidnapped, he's held captive, it's against his will, he's indoctrinated by the false belief system of the day, he is abused, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice, food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted favor to Daniel and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. No matter what we do, we are faith-filled and obedient to God's Word. And on occasion, God shows us favor by those who rule over us, seeing the good in us, and allowing us that expression of obedience. 
So Daniel is one model, and there's a lot of detail here that I won't go into. But Daniel shows that you and I, in this election year, in this political season, in the back and forth that is so agonizing at times, it's just like, ugh. It's just this anguish that you feel about it at times. At least me, I do. I see some of this stuff. All I know is that, God, I can't control them and what they say and what they do, and it's crazy at times. But I know one thing, Lord, that you call for me is to remain obedient to you no matter the opposition. And that's why he says to secondly, be involved. Be involved. Get engaged regardless of the opposition. Go out there and show yourself as one who does good deeds, even if they slander you, Peter says. Even if they do that, show them the good deeds. This is where Daniel steps up in Daniel 1. And the king talked with them, and out of them all not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are the Hebrew names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they entered the king's personal service. They're the right-hand people to the king. They're the close confidant. Daniel is this counselor to King Nebuchadnezzar. He defines dreams. He gives them insights about God. What a powerful, wonderful place to be. And we need believers that are right there at the power post of those who rule over us. We need to be engaged. We need to be partners with them to engage with them because you never know when God's going to do what he did to Nebuchadnezzar to the people that are in power, and he humbles them. And then who do they have to look to but people like you and me? So we engage with those in power. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than the magicians and the conjurers who, by, who were in his realm. Man. What a privilege to have a place to go, serve in the political arena, serve in the public square, if you will, be engaged with a community that doesn't believe in Jesus, so that when the time comes, we can show them we have good things to offer. It's interesting to me, I've shared about this before, that in the past few months, Biola had a problem, as did many Christian schools, with this new law that was being handed down that that was going to constrain religious freedom and bathroom privileges for people who are the opposite sex and sort of the uh, loss of uh, government funding that could come to students if they didn't abide by the new laws about how uh, their convictions are not being held properly. It's interesting that every time I remember sitting with Barry Corey, and Barry Corey went up to the man who was writing that legislation and sat down with him in his office and shared with him who Biola is. And they would see stories of who Biola students are. And that when these political powers that were opposed to Biola and their convictions began to see who the students were, began to meet who the president is, their hearts changed. Because they had this preconceived idea that Biola is just a bunch of bigots that are right-wing fundamentalists and they've got this closed little mind and there's, they're just ignorant. But when they get engaged with them, man, their lives change. Liberal professors that don't believe in Jesus who are atheists come on the campus, teach on the campus. They get engaged with the students on the campus and they're blown away. And we get reports of 
professors that come and engage with the students and said, I didn't know you had so many brilliant students at Biola. My mind is changing as to how I view Biola. And what Daniel does here, he changes what King Nebuchadnezzar thinks about the Jews. Because this guy's brilliant. He wouldn't have that if he isn't engaged. He didn't run and hide. He engages. So that's why Peter says, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Be hopeful regardless of the outcome. Be hopeful. No matter what the election is, some of us have wishes and we should vote according to what we believe was our convictions. I'll talk about that in a moment. But notice how hopeful Daniel becomes. Jeremiah 29 says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is Daniel and those tens of thousands of Jews that were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. Jeremiah writes to them, Now that you're living in Babylon, folks, you're the exiles, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare." Now again, these are the alien of all aliens. They have been forcefully taken from their nation. It would be like Putin came over here from Russia and Putin declares himself the king of the United States of America. And then he begins to ship some of us over to Russia. And we begin living in Siberia. And it feels like hell, but it feels so cold. And there we live. And we want to say, oh, I feel so sorry for myself. Well, God said to those Jews who might have felt sorry for yourselves, don't. Seek the welfare of the city where you're at. Do what you can for good. Let them see you prosper. Let them see the goodness that I have given to you. And then pray for the welfare of that city. Do that. That's what God wanted them to do and for you and me as well today. Just as they were aliens in Babylon, we're aliens in America. But we seek the welfare of this community, of this country, for good. And then be prayerful, seeking God's will according to his word for our church and our community. Now, this is staggering. Daniel served in this Babylonian power that became the Persian power. He served for 66 years. (laughs) And it would be like trying to serve from... uh, what uh, Ronald Reagan all the way through every president to today, or more than that perhaps, I, I, I can't do the math, but you get the point. <laughs> and there he is with these pagan kings, and he serves them all that time, and in Daniel 9 he begins to read Jeremiah. He begins to read the book, the Bible such as they had it in those days, the scroll from Jeremiah. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asuras, which is, could be Cyrus, who was the king of Persia, or it might have been one of Cyrus's appointed men of medium descent who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, which is the Babylonians. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed 
as the Lord of God to Jeremiah, the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Israel, namely 70 years. He opens the book. He begins to read Jeremiah. He says, my goodness, Lord, I've been here since 605 B.C. It's about 539 B.C. It's almost 70 years if I hadn't read the book. I wouldn't know that you're in charge and that in 70 years you're going to send us back. It's because he read the book, he prayed about the book, and God revealed to him, you're right, Daniel. If you were ignorant of Scripture, you would have no idea that I sent you there for 70 years. And in 70 years, I'm going to ship you back. And I'm going to make those pagan kings pay to build those temples and those walls. It's amazing. So he reads the book. The 70 years are up, so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. He says, God, I confess anything. I pray, God, please, your will be done because according to your word, you said 70 years are up. And this is what he would have read in Jeremiah. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for will welfare and not calamity, to give you a future and hope. We quote that today as if it's to us. It was to the Jews in Babylon. We get secondary application to be sure, but he goes on to say, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord God. I will restore your fortunes, will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place where I sent you into exile. I will do this. See, God is in charge, and we're waiting for him to bring us back to a heavenly home. But in the meanwhile, seek the welfare of the city. I ask for us to be people like that, just like Daniel. What an impact for 66 years to serve God. Well, I'd like to conclude with hearing from a female Daniel, if you will. That's not too much for Carolyn. I'm going to invite Carolyn to come on up here. You've hit her enough of me yelling at you now, so let's have Carolyn come up here. <laughs> Carolyn Griff- Car- Griffith. What's wrong with me? <laughs> I'm getting everybody's names. Such Car- an easy topic to talk about, yes, so I Carolyn appreciate this today. Yes, Carolyn has been a wonderful member here at Calvary Church, and uh, I was so blown away because Carolyn, at one point, was the mayor of Orange. Mm-hmm. To jump into that arena. Yeah. So I was curious. Tell us, how did you come about to become... Uh, even to jump into the arena of the election process. It was very um, an unexpected and on a planned um, journey for the Kavechi family. Um, I was very involved here actually in Calvary. I had a three-year-old daughter. I had our, our second um, uh, little one was in a stroller. I was very involved in the mops ministry here at Calvary, and I pushed a stroller um, with my three-year-old little girl into a, a little neighborhood uh, store in Orange and uh, saw an entire rack of adult material and turned and saw my three-year-old daughter standing, perusing the covers of the adult materials, mm-hmm. and it, um, my heart hurt and um, made my first call to City Hall in the city of Orange and ended up uh, meeting with a vice cop and a city attorney and the mayor at the time and helped write an ordinance um, wow. for the city of Orange, and that started our, our journey. So you chose to run yes. for mayor. Well, I... I don't know that I particularly would have made that decision myself, but it was something we felt we were supposed to do as a family. Good for you. Well, you got engaged. You got involved. Yes. You watched. You didn't complain. You get on there and you do good. I did my best. 
You did good. Thank you. <laughs> or as I do well, I don't know. Anyways, tell us, you, you've been in the arena. I know that it's sometimes very painful in that public yeah. scene where people say things yes. and write things yes. and all that. Yes. What would you say to us who are not always, most of us here are not elected officials in that public arena, and as we look at this election, what would you say to us to help us as we move forward at this time? Well, and I, I think you set a really good base. I, this has been an, uh, a really um, a difficult time. I think, for our country. And I'm still involved. I, I um, run a, an organization, a countywide organization now, that has a lot of political activity as well. And um, in the business of politics, um, we have all been very um, shocked at, um, at this election and, and the rancor nationwide. So that's those of us in the business have been very surprised mm. by it. Um, and I think what's broken my heart as a Christian um, and as, as a believer is really just the turmoil we've seen within the body of believers nationwide. And, um, and I think we have an opportunity. So what I'd like to say, um, in, in being as, as hopefully as correct as I can, is I view this as an opportunity for the church um, post-election to really step forward into into a, a country that is going to be looking for um, something solid to grasp onto. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as a body of believers, no matter what the outcome is, and as you said, God knows, and he's mm-hmm. in total control. I just wish that we as a body of believers step forward. Uh, people who feel called to run for office, it, it really is a tremendous ministry. Um, but I think we need to look at our country and at our culture and, and really reach out and be an example of what God wants for us mm-hmm. and, and what he wants for us to do on this earth. Yeah, that's good. And you made a difference in that one you enter that store? Yes. Little by little, we little make a difference. It, we it, can't it's, have it's a difficult business to yeah. be in, I will say. It's, yeah. it's hard. I'm sure. And you, you and I have talked over the years. It's yes. For you and Rick to go through all that together and just the... Yeah. But thank you for That's hanging in there and being Christ to my the pleasure. community that needs to see that. My pleasure. So let's thank Carolyn for being yeah. our servant here. Thank, thank you. you so much. What should we do in response? So what's us? I want to show you a little video that shows immediately one thing that we need to be thinking about and responding to. So take a look at this. Every day begins with choices. From the moment we wake up, our day consists of endless opportunities to choose. Our choices are driven by our values, our dreams, and our faith. Sometimes we stand out for our choices. Other times, we may not see how our choices affect those around us. Some choices are easy. Others require more serious thought and prayer.
On November 8th, Americans have an important choice to make. A choice that will shape our nation for years to come. Join 90 million Christians as we cast our votes based on our faith, our hopes, and our prayers for America. Make the pledge to vote from a biblical worldview, because what we believe matters. And it does. I want us to think... You know, Daniel could have said, you know, God, you're in charge, so I'll just kind of lay back and do nothing and just kind of huddle over here with my friends, my three friends, and, you know, just kind of hang out until who knows what happens. But he didn't do that. He got engaged. He became involved. He served, and he stood for what was true and holy, and God honored that. God honored that. doesn't always work that way. We saw the persecuted church. We know sometimes it goes differently. But in this case, God does honor many who do that. So for you and for me, I've given to you some things for you to pray about and consider. On the bottom of this outline, along with voting on November 11th, please vote. Please vote. There are these areas that we need to pray about. As Daniel looked into the book of Jeremiah, and God revealed to Jeremiah, to, through Jeremiah to Daniel, here is what I'm planning to do, and this is what I want. You will seek me, and you will find me, he says. Well, these are values that God wants us to engage with. God is a pro-life God. He believes in life, whether in the womb or outside the womb, whether disabled, affirmed, elderly. God is a pro-life God. God loves marriage between a man and a woman. God designed it that way. He continues to affirm it. You heard it, heard it last week through Sean McDowell. He loves those godly marriages that are successful and prosperous, that display the kind of love that everybody wants. God loves those who are strangers who come to our world. As Jesus wrote, reached out to the Samaritan woman, who was a stranger that was rejected by the Jewish society, Jesus engaged with her. He loved her. And the city had a revival in John 4. Th- these are values that God wants to remind us of. No matter your party, no matter your ideology, remember what God loves and love it with him and vote accordingly to him. So I'm going to invite us to pray. I want us to pray about these things, the bottom, pray about this election. Pray for Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. I'm not one to say who's saved and who's not saved, but I know they need Jesus. I know I need Jesus. So would you pray for them as well, their hearts, and God would rule as God ruled over King Cyrus, that God would rule over our country as well. I'm going to invite you, if you are comfortable and able to do that, to get on your knees and pray. And bring these things before Almighty God, the sovereign God that ruled over Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, and Cyrus. He's still that same God and wants to rule over us and our community and country. So would you pray with me on your knees if you can? If not, that's fine too. Let's just spend some time in prayer.
Our Father God, as we have that view in Daniel 9 of Daniel on his knees, contrite, fasting, praying, confessing, as he engaged and remained so faithful for 66 years in a kingdom that was in great contrast to the kingdom that you have for us someday. Yet he persisted and served well. So, Lord, you give us images like that. You give us stories like that so that we can learn that these are things that you would invite us into as well. I pray, God, that those of us who love Jesus and follow him, that we would be known for the holiness of our lives, that we would be known for the love for others, that we would be people of grace and mercy to those in need, that we would be an example to others that need you in how we live, and if we're married, how we love our spouse, and if parents, how we care for our children, and then how we reach into our community for good. Father, we pray that as you are the sovereign God that Daniel revealed to us that you are that same God today and that you would be the sovereign God over our country, over our churches, that politics would not divide us, but that Christ would unite us and that we would be on display that even when slandered, like Peter said, they observe our good behavior and glorify God in the day of visitation. Lord, let us be people like that. It's always been that way. It's not likely to change until Jesus comes back. So keep us faithful to that end. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.